Well, hello and welcome to another episode of But Why, the podcast that's all about digging into big questions and tricky topics by honest conversations. This week, we're going to be looking at money, debt, finances and pensions. It was a bit of a two-parter. Later on, I'm going to be talking to the Chief Executive Officer of today's sponsor, Pension B. But beforehand, let me introduce you to my first guest. In 2019, she found herself at a breaking point. She had racked up £27,000 worth of debt, at which point she turned to Instagram to make herself accountable, posting anonymously about her journey out of debt under the account My Frugal Year. She immediately struck a chord and her posts offering advice and solidarity to a growing community of people in a similar situation. Since then, she's steadied her finances and become a sort of voice on the subject, writing for the likes of The Telegraph, Huffington Post, Grazia and Low Magazine, and writing three books herself, including Real Life Money, An Honest Guide to Taking Control of Your Finances. She's also a mother of two, and we have a shared experience of working in advertising. Without further ado, let me introduce you to Claire Seal. Hello. Hello. Hi, Clemmy. We're not going to talk about advertising. I'm going to ask you three important questions to get things going, which are, how are you really? What star sign are you? And what's your favourite biscuit? So, uh, how am I really? I'm odd at the moment, actually. I am so brilliant in some ways and then very up and down in Mm. others so um you know I have had like a really quick journey with money actually going from one position a couple of years ago to now being in a really financially privileged position of earning very very well and more than I ever thought that I would earn um Mm. and it's it's brilliant in a sense but it takes quite a lot of getting used to and I think that um you know it's a conversation I've been having quite a lot lately is that there's a certain kind of shame that comes with feeling like you're not earning enough and Mm. having debt and feeling like you can't you know you're stuck in a bit of a hole that you can't get out of and then there's another type of shame that feels that comes from sort of feeling like you've got too much or you're too lucky and I very much know which I would rather have but Mm. moving from one to the other has been quite sort of um yeah it's been quite an experience so yeah that's how I am really uh I am a Virgo um which uh I I don't really identify with the Virgo tropes at all um so yeah that's I mean that's something that's haunted me at various times in my life actually they're like oh you're a Virgo so you must be really organized um I'm, I'm there with like you know, I'm very late with sort of papers flying everywhere. So, um, yeah. And my favourite biscuit is those like little fruity shortbreads ones with the sugar oh. on top. I, I think that's probably not a po- like popular choice, but I love them. Absolutely love them. I think it's probably not a popular choice in the under 70s, but I feel no. like you've got... <laughs> At least it's not like a fig roll or something. No. I feel like that would tip me over the edge. <laughs> thing is we all might not they might not come to mind as a favorite but if we had a packet if I, I've got a cup of tea here if I had a packet here I know I'd, I'd make a hefty dental and so it's a good one it's a good one um it's very interesting what you say about that money thing so um I'm sure you know Alex Holder uh and she wrote we need to talk about money was that the title that's the take you Agbert. Alex oh, Holder is open up open up yeah and she interviewed me about that, and I, I was one, just asking myself beforehand whether I'm going to get into this. But we found ourselves in 
a pretty dire financial straits about six years ago when my husband's um, company ended up filing insolvent. And so I'm, I relate to a lot of the work that you do. But similarly, off the back of that, because I had to pull us out of that situation, I ended up for a time in a, in a pretty high earning job. And in both instances, I found myself, yeah, kind of not wanting to say what my finances were. And so it just, for me, really did shine a light on the shame that's shrouded in money, that it, it, it isn't necessarily rooted in any kind of figure. It's rooted in our experience of it. Yeah, and I think it's rooted in the the closeness of it as well. So um, nobody really talks about money across, you know, whatever different circumstances. I, I think it can feel like you're sort of quite alone in your experience of it. And there are so many, it's really multifaceted as well, because you, you have people who, um, are, you know, don't necessarily earn particularly high salaries, but are very confident with money and you know mm. are using every uh every sort of penny to their advantage and are really you know pushing forwards and very happy in their relationship with money but then and mm-hmm. then you also have people who are very high earners who cannot keep money like it just slips through their fingers because you get the lifestyle creep you have people who um uh, you know, I interviewed quite a few people for my new book um, and the range of different situations. So there are f- a few people that I spoke to who had grown up either with financial insecurity or in poverty, who then went mm-hmm. on to have, um, you know, a, a really good income. But, you know, a lot of them went through at least a period of just spending that money because they didn't feel that they were worthy of holding on to it. Um, and you know just getting rid of it because they didn't feel worthy whereas other people who'd had that experience growing up felt that they had to desperately cling to money and I think both of those are very unhealthy places to be in your relationship with money and it's it's something that's very very difficult to rectify and it takes quite a lot of work and and it's hugely emotional that's the thing it's this very unusual thing where on the one hand it's extremely practical it's how we all get paid for what we do it's how we make our way in the world but yeah it's extremely loaded and and anything that sits in that place is really difficult to navigate and and I mean this was going to be my opening question actually what what are your kind of early memories of money what was your upbringing around money so I grew up between two households. My parents separated when I was like months old, so I don't have any memories of them being together. And what I think one of the reasons they separated was that they were very, very different people. And that also translated into each of their relationships with money. So at my mum's house, she is um, very sort of, um, you know, very generous, generous to a fault. Um, I would say, you know, in that she doesn't necessarily keep anything back for herself. Um, and my dad grew up like poor and was very frugal. And so, um, there were two very different approaches to money, but both were fairly secretive and I didn't necessarily, Mm. um, you know, I would hear snatches of conversation, um, at my mum's house and she remarried um, someone who was from 
wealth, like from a really wealthy background. Um, but there were, you know, a, there was a very complicated financial situation. So I would hear snatches of um, snatches of things. Uh, and then at my dad's house, he wouldn't really talk about it very much. And I remember if I was there on a Sunday, I'd sort of like wander up to find him in his room with the door closed, like doing his budget on uh, on like plain paper that he'd drawn columns onto. And he's like scrawling away in his tiny, neat handwriting. Um, but my dad died when I was 20. So I didn't really have much experience of like working and earning and having his input or him as a sounding mm-hmm. board. And I think that when you lose a parent at such a young age, it sends you spinning off into orbit a little bit anyway. You lose one of the things that's grounding you and one of the thing one of the people who reminds you who you are. So um, you know, that sort of coupled with the fact that I'd lost that sort of sensible, like frugal influence on my uh, on my attitude towards money was, yeah, it was very disconcerting. And it was mm. further complicated by the fact that when he died, I inherited 10 grand. And it seemed like a huge amount of money to me back then. And actually, you know, it was, this was 2010. So um, it was worth Mm. a lot more than it is now. Um, And yeah, but I just, I didn't want it. Like, and I, I think subconsciously, Mm. I just found myself wanting to get rid of it because it was such like a poor substitute for my dad. Wow. It's really, it's, it's a really, Powerful thing. And, and and how old were you in 2010? What was going on in terms of your own earnings? So I was 20. So I was actually still at university. I had taken a year out and worked for six months and then traveled for six months. Um, and so I and my birthday's in September. So I was 19 when I started university and he died in my first year. So then I had kind of the rest of university to navigate and um, then I didn't start working and like earning a full-time salary until a good three or four years later. Um, so it was really, yeah, it was, it, was quite an, it was quite an odd time. I think for everyone, part of university is learning who you are and mm-hmm. I felt like I had lost like a very big part of who I was in the first year and was trying to figure that out so and I mean definitely I went into uni with zero clue about money and I very quickly excavated my like two grand interest-free overdraft which I only paid back I only paid it off last year when I was 30 so um yeah it's um And I think a lot of our kind of attitudes towards money are like really cemented either at university or the first couple of years of work. It's interesting I'm thinking about my own experience of university because when you're at school, for me at least, most people are from a very broadly similar background, kind of very averagey middle class, if if there is such a thing. You know what I mean? Everyone, it felt the same. And then 
for me when I went to uni there was suddenly a much bigger disconnect and so I had you know friends who had come from more wealthy backgrounds than I had and were burning through cash in a way that you know in a different way and and you suddenly it's the first time you're kind of in your own financial independent moment, aren't you? You've got you've got no parameters, nobody. You know, it is quite a, a mad transition from being at home, not really doing a weekly shop, not really being in charge of anything, to to this chunk of money in your account, endless freedom, and no one to level against. Against so, if you've got anyone who's better off than you, and you're in any way trying to match them, it's an absolute recipe for disaster isn't it yeah and I think another thing that Alex Holder covers quite well in her book is um the fact that it's normal and it's quite cool actually to be broke when you're a student but then within six months of graduating you realize whose parents you know whose parents are going to pay off their overdraft for them and whose parents are going to give them a house deposit um or worse you don't realize and you think oh why is my friend doing so much better than me um Mm. and it's a conversation that I I've been having literally this morning um, on Instagram about kind of, you know, the bank of mum and dad and the role that that plays for all of us. Again, with that kind of Mm -hmm. guilt and shame around um, having been gifted money and feeling like you haven't worked for it and earned it. And, uh, you know, and then the guilt and shame around, uh, you know, maybe being in your 30s and, and, feeling like you're never going to own a house you know all of all of that stuff or feeling like you know you're never going to earn the salary that you want all of that stuff um and not necessarily realizing that your peers are in the position that they're in because they've had help um so and again I know which guilt and shame I would rather deal with and it's Mm -hmm. it's the former but um I think that it's it's because there's such a lack of discourse around those things that I genuinely think if mm. we were more open, then it would be better for people on both sides of the equation. I can think of people at, at, who have received big gifts and, you know, we've been helped out by parents. But often, and I, as you say, I know the privilege of that. I know, but, but you know, there, there might not be straightforward stories behind some of that gifting. Mm. You know, sometimes having having um money and and um objects is actually is wonderful but maybe there's something else you want to maybe you want emotional support like you say that 10 grand from your dad no money in the world would have been a good swap out for you for 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 his guidance and so it yeah it is complex and and then there are power dynamics that come from um money that runs through generational wealth Definitely. and yeah again is you have I have to keep caveating the, the privilege of that but it isn't to say there isn't complexities That's, that is really true and I think that often especially if it is generational wealth the money comes with a degree of control um you know so uh, and i think this is something actually is fiction but i think it's something that's covered really really nicely in how to kill your family by bella mackey um you know which is sort of you know deals quite a lot with poverty versus you know wealth in the extreme and looking at the dynamics of her estranged family and um you know 
one of them who's escaped because he didn't want the money because of all of the strings that were attached to it so mm-hmm. um I you know if you're sort of looking for a more like light-hearted approach to it I think sometimes we can find that in fiction as well as just sort of reading like non-fictional guides or memoirs it's so interesting for um my book but why I answered some questions from kids about um, money which you helped me with but I asked you know I asked about what it is, why aren't we rich, but why aren't we rich? And then put that out to people from all kinds of backgrounds. And, you know, the answer was often we might not be um, wealthy in terms of finances, but we're wealthy in terms of love and, you know, our connection with one another. And, you know, you can have the opposite end of that scale where people have bags and bags of money, but, you know, emotionally void homes. And again, of course, money makes it much easier to live, but there is there is definitely damage and complexity to to not having those kind of family units. Definitely, and I think also, um, so it's I think it's in Mo Gaudat's book Soul for Happy, um, where he sort of talks about. I mean, it's it's not an original idea of his, but he, the context he's able to give to it is great because he did have everything he could have possibly wanted, and he was. Like, I was so depressed <laughs> um, but he's mm. is sort of talking about the fact that uh, beyond having a, a living wage and a livable amount to to sort of survive and thrive on um, money beyond that doesn't necessarily in, you know uh, equal a sort of increase in happiness and it's quite well documented that um, you know beyond having as long as you're not living um, sort of, you know, in poverty or below that threshold where you can, um, you know, survive and be sort of, um, you know, mobile and have access to the education that you need and want and all of that stuff. Beyond that, um, there isn't necessarily a positive correlation between more money Mm. and more happiness. And yeah, I wonder, it's a different conversation, but I wonder with extreme wealth, you have a loss of sense of purpose and a, a loss of reason to to do things you know it's why people who win the lottery spiral because you, what are you getting up for yeah i think we underestimate the drive for finances as oh, a definitely. So yeah, and i think we see often um you know either people who win the lottery or um you know people who are thrown into celebrity uh, bankrupt themselves very very quickly because mm. they it you know and this is something that I say a lot is that like more money is definitely helpful in a lot of situations mm. however um more money does not necessarily mean that you know how to use it um and there's you know there's a case for debt forgiveness that I've seen you know where sort of people who are struggling would have their debt paid off by the government. Um, and there, there have been academic cases for that. And I think that's really applicable in some cases where people have been forced to accrue debt because of things like the pandemic or uh, illness or anything like that. But I think for me, um, I, I know that before I went through this per, like process of kind of reconciling my relationship with money and really going back mm-hmm. to... Uh, to sort of zero and rebuilding it 
if someone had just come along and paid off my 27 grand worth of debt, I, I can guarantee you that six months later I would have been 10K deep again. I just mm. can guarantee that. Mm. Um, so mm. for me, A, paying it back was something important that I had to do, but B, the the lessons that I learned in, you know, in during the process of paying that back are going to pay dividends for the future as well so I think it just really depends as well so let's talk a bit about that the how you found yourself in in that kind of debt and when you hear that as I was reading your intro does that hearing that number have a visceral effect on you or you or because you've been through this process of repaying it is that does it not have that on it you? It definitely used to uh, for quite a long time. And then I had kind of reconciled myself with it. And then when Real Life Money came out last year, I kind of watched as the, with the publicity around it. And, you know, um, newspapers and magazines always want to grip onto the thing that's going to, um, you know, sort of draw the biggest audience. So, of course, they're going to grip onto that, like, large sounding amount um mm. and I kind of I felt like I watched myself reduced again to this massive sum of debt and I, that I tried to kind mm. of pull myself away from that because I think a lot of people really do define themselves by their debt or their financial difficulty and I did for a long time and that's something that I try mm-hmm. and encourage people to step away from um and to kind of change their language around that to, to sort of you know it's it's a process of separating your self-worth from your net worth um Mm. but yeah so I I had a real like regression uh around that time but since then again I've I've kind of just gone back to my own principles of that and yes it was a large sum I think it's it's always easier to um be accepting of something when you've already resolved it so um you know now that it's Mm. paid back and again this is something that Alex Holder has said a couple of times is like she finds it much easier to talk about the debt that she had now that it's paid off and I think that's always the Mm. case um but you know I think talking about it and writing real life money while I still had you know five figure sum of debt helped it was kind of like exposure therapy um, and also hearing other people's experiences of similar amounts mm. or more that really helped me to put it into context as well. Can we, if you don't mind, can we talk about that kind of, for want of a better piece of language, rock bottom moment? Because mm. how long was that kind of downward spiral? What did that look like? And then what did the rock bottom kind of um, materialise as? I think it started, I think it was really like a period of 10 years. It was just, as is often the case with things, it was kind of like a slow spiral to begin with and then it gets much quicker towards the end. So, um, you know, I had, I graduated uni still with this uh, two grand overdraft. Um, I graduated into quite a low paid job. I was on 16K when I graduated and I graduated, I did a four-year degree. I was old in the year and I'd taken a gap year. So I was um, almost 24 when I graduated in 2013. Mm. Uh, and then when I, I, like sort of not even a year later, I was pregnant. So I 
then went into the maternity leave, the childcare, um, you know, trying to throw together some kind of life with my, like, family life with my now husband, um, you know, and we, we had been at university together for sort of four years, but we didn't get together until, like, a couple of months before I was pregnant, so it, it was so new, and we were trying to you know, we joined NCT, everyone else had been together for ages and planned and had all their ducks in a row. And I think, especially because although 24, 25 is not particularly young to start a family, Mm. um, especially by kind of previous generation standards, I was very, I very much felt like a young mum. I felt unprepared. And that made me more determined to make sure that my baby was going to have the best of everything. Um, and so there was really like no expense spared and we were actually you know it wasn't that we were kind of throwing cash at everything we were still trying to be quite careful but the reality was that I was earning 16 16 or 17k before I went on maternity leave Mm. my husband was on 24 grand which to us at the time was like a massive pay rise for him from his previous job so we were not earning very much um, and we were still trying to fit in with this kind of middle class ideal of what it is <laughs> to start a family. So there was a lot of incremental overspending and living beyond our means. And then we uh, got married and that is where the bulk of the actual cash um, came from. Um, and I think, I don't think it's uncommon to carry debt from your wedding for a good couple of years afterwards. I think it's, again, it's another one of those things that's sort of unspoken. But if you ask anyone about it, they're like, oh yeah, we've still got five grand on a credit card from our wedding or whatever. But it was just, it really compounded what was already quite a spiraling situation. Mm. And then it's shortly after we got, well, the day that we got back after our like little mini honeymoon, I found out I was pregnant with our second child. So it was genuinely like a baby wedding, baby sandwich. Um, and so uh, again, you know, maternity leave, more childcare. Mm. And I think it would not be unusual at all, again, by previous generation standards or, or potentially, you know, still in some families, um, nowadays to have uh two children and be married and own a home by the time you're 30 um but for us you know even just the two children and the wedding were had completely crippled us financially and we had no hope of you know owning a home or saving for a house deposit so I think I have sort of said this a couple of times and I've said it in the new book five steps is I think sometimes our blueprint for what building a life and family Mm. and putting down Mm. roots looks like is quite outdated and Mm. really unaffordable Mm. (laughs) um so yeah it was just a real perfect storm of different circumstances and also like underpinned by this fundamental like fundamentally broken relationship with money and Mm. not really understanding how to live within my means or our means and um you know being very easily influenced I think as well Mm. by sort of social media and also by 
friends and peers. So I think it's, you know, it's it's a it's a perfect storm. And I th- but I think it's a situation mm. that loads of people find themselves in as well. Yeah, I'm listening to you and thinking. I mean, yeah, it, it's so resonant. And I look back at the amount of money we spent on our wedding. And it wasn't it wasn't lavish, lavish, lavish. We went for it because that's what that was the amount of money that that's what you did. The way that we did it was the way that you did it. And I look back now and what that chunk of money would do for any part of <laughs> any part of our life. And and that sounds very unromantic, but and I, I'm trying to work out whether if at the time there was anything in my mind that thought. This is a what, what what are you doing? But I also think we have to acknowledge I wasn't quite as young as you, but I was twenty eight when I got married, so still in my twenties. I think in your twenties, you think you're like you you know what you're doing, and I re- reflect now, and it's like you you don't have an you don't have a clue. You're you're so you're not that far out of being a kid, really, and and also you're you're you've gone from being a kid to suddenly adding all these layers of responsibility pretty fast without having really adjusted at any point. But what, I mean, what would you go back and say to yourself? How would, how would, or what would you say to your kids? I'm not sure. I think, I mean, we're really trying with our kids to help them to see like the value of money early. Um, You know, so our, our eldest son has like a Go Henry app and where, you know, Mm. he has, like some pocket money every week but he can earn a bit more by being helpful um and it's it's really handy to be able to do that um but also like if he he wants something then we've started to sort of work with him to work out a savings plan and when he might be able Mm. to afford it by and things like that so I think that's helpful in terms of those basic skills but I think you know, you can only equip your children as as well as you can, and then once they're off into the world, they're going to do whatever to they're going to do. Um, but yeah, I don't know what I would go back and say to myself. I think now, even though it was a large sum of money, and it again, it was not like a super flash wedding, and it wasn't massive massive in terms of people um, attending. I think I think I would definitely go back and tell myself not to sort of not to make decisions based on like pleasing other people or how it looked to other mm. people. I think that's a big mm. thing. Um, mm. But I also think that we're in a very diff- I think we're in a bit of a different frame of mind about weddings post pandemic. Um, I mm-hmm. don't know about you, but I've seen so many amazing like elopements and just like mm. tiny, tiny little weddings that I think mm. now if I was getting married, I'm a bit of a hopeless romantic and I think I've romanticised the idea of like a tiny wedding so much that I'd probably go for that. But um, yeah. And the irony is all the layers um, of the expense actually the bits that add to the stress that's the absolute irony of it you know the whatever doing the I mean I love flowers don't get me wrong but favors and bits and bobs and um Zoe Blasky of Motherkind is like you've got to remember how something feels not how something looks yeah and I yeah our wedding was really focused on making sure everyone else had a great time and, and rather than 
making it a great day for us. And actually, a translatable point now that I've learned over the pandemic is with children's parties. You know, I think Instagram and Pinterest had made them go absolutely out of control. And then during the pandemic, when my kids could get a gift and a takeaway of their choice from Deliveroo and walk around the park, they, they actually had really great days. And of course, we're going to do more things with their friends now, but it doesn't, you don't need to be spending a daft amount of money and a daft amount of stress because it doesn't equate to a better time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, I, I think there's so much of that. And you are right when it comes to children. Um, I, I think people quite often like put their children's expectations or like project them onto them so um because mm-hmm. I've had quite a lot of people asking about this around Christmas and feeling you know mm-hmm. feeling guilty that either they're prioritizing other things or they just can't afford to give their children the, the, the amount of presents that they normally would or whatever but I, I don't think that children expect that much. I have so you know, teenagers may be slightly different because they're a bit more focused on brands and things. But I think children under ten that they don't they don't tot up how much things have cost and they don't like count yeah. piles of presents. You know, unless you're raising actual Dudley Dursley, you're not. It, yeah. it doesn't matter to them. And I think sometimes we project how like our guilt at not being able to uh you know do what we normally do onto our onto our children rather than that being how they'll actually feel so um and and the same goes with parties mm. i think you know mm. we're doing like a trampolining party for our son <laughs> which is going to be oh it's going to be sweaty yes. uh, but you know it it very you know previously i've done thought loads about like decorations and invitations and stuff mm. and this time you know we've booked the place the people will supervise it they get a little lunch box and uh I'm just gonna send everyone a whatsapp message telling them when it is okay. um, and you know and we're, it, we're still really lucky to be able to do that but I think you know previously I would have been so obsessed with the tiny details that nobody cares about um, and it's very freeing to be released from that. Yeah, we we have to really check ourselves. And I, th- I wanted to link into, and I think it is all related, but that emotional spending, um, both to soothe your own emotions about yourself, but what we're talking about is how you're trying to do something emotionally for your kids as well. Yeah, and I think that's that's a really big thing. And I think it's really important to acknowledge both of those sides because... I see overspending uh, touted as something really selfish a lot in my job. You know, I kind of I have to read the, the sort of more um, the more sort of abrupt opinions about um, you know spending, etc. Um, and I think that yeah, there's a real misconception that most emotional spending is like buying stuff for yourself. Um, and I don't think that's the case. I think most people whose heartstrings are pulled are buying things for other people. Um, and especially because most of us are so sort of time starved. Um, you know, we have like a lot going on and um, the sort of the time and, and we're, we're a bit kind of 
connection poor as well especially following the pandemic we feel like mm. we've lost connection to people and that the solution to that you know we're surrounded by advertising all the time that tells us that the solution to that is to buy them something <laughs> to make up for the fact that we mm. can't spend time for them or that we've lost a bit of connection or that we forgot about something or whatever so I think there's definitely that element and I think working mums feel this a lot um and Mm -hmm. you know working dads probably less so um and that's again that's to do with society and how mums have to feel guilty for doing both whereas dads are fine to sort of spawn in and out whenever they want you know broadly speaking um and but I think yeah for for women if you haven't feel like you haven't spent enough time or paid enough attention to your children it's really common Mm -hmm. to want to spend more money on them or you know to not not feel like you can say no when they pick up like six quid Paw Patrol magazine and the the co-op or whatever so um yeah but I, I do also think there is um the kind of the other element of emotional spending which is spending on yourself which again isn't like a a selfish thing I think a lot of emotional spending that we do on ourselves is trying to fix things that we think are wrong with us again especially women women are kind of stuck in this weird triple bind whereby still paid less um and you know the um the gender pay gap is still massive and there's a huge intersection with the race pay gap. So black women are, are dealing with this a lot more acutely as well, um, by and large. Um, but then, you know, there's, um, yeah, so we're, we're paid less, then we're advertised to relentlessly, um, you know, in terms of uh, fixing stuff that we're, is wrong with us. We're told at a very early age that, um, you know, our bum's too big or it's not big enough uh you know uh too fat too thin hair's the wrong color uh your face needs contouring all of this stuff um and and Mm -hmm. we've like flogged relentlessly flogged this stuff to fix ourselves and then to kind of cap it all off there's this uh sort of a societal narrative of frivolous women who spend all their money on shoes and handbags and superficial things so I think you know emotional spending Mm. is particularly an issue for women and and that's I suppose Mm -hmm. what I what I care about most because most of my audience are women and and so am I and I think that we are still very disadvantaged economically um you know, especially again, women who are in same-sex relationships, because you, um, you know, both you're dealing with the double whammy of the of the gender pay gap and all, also all of those other economic challenges. So, mm. I think emotional spending is a lot more than I feel sad. I'm going to buy myself, you know, a new lipstick. It, it's it goes much much deeper than that. It's about like self-soothing and um you know Mm. kind of spending to either fill a void or try and fix something that we don't like about ourselves Mm. like you're saying about new outfits like genuinely so my husband bought his wedding suit it was really nice like sort of 
slightly brighter than navy and a burgundy tie he wore that suit to every event that we went to for the following three years and if i'd worn the same dress people have been like she only got one dress like or that's what i feel like people would have been like but he was like nobody notices uh you know i think it's a blessing and a curse because you don't off, you would often like walk up to a man and say, "Oh, you look nice today." Um, but no, yeah, it's funny. But it's I'm trying to like wrap towards the end. We've covered quite a lot in quite a, in a broad way. It's I guess the bit that would be I'd like to end on is if there's someone sitting here now with that sinking feeling that they know that they they they've got a stack of debt that they want to make that you know they want to make a change. Where where do you begin? What would be your first steps now so the first step I think is to um kind of arm yourself with all the information you need and it's really unfair but the first step probably is the hardest um because pulling your head out of the sand can be really really difficult and it can be it can hurt quite a lot um but I, I would really advocate having someone to support you, whether that's somebody that you trust from your own life, like a friend or family member, partner, or whether it's someone from like Step Change Agency or um, a charity like that, Debt Support Charity, um, they they can also help you. Um, and yeah, just uh, unturn all of those stones, make sure that you know what you owe, where what the interest rates are, all mm. of that information, um, and just get it down. Um, and Because it's only once you know everything that you can really start to make a plan that's actually going to work. Um, I, mm. I tried loads of times to sort, of sort myself out, but I was never brave enough to, um, you know, actually actually find out all of the information. I'd find out, like, little bits and make, like, half a plan. Um, and the second part is to kind of try and put together a a plan to pay off the debt and b a a budget to stick to I mean you you're probably and your budget is really just telling you what's coming in what's going out that that's all it is um and giving you the kind of information that you need to make decisions about what money goes where it's going to be very very difficult to um to successfully pay off debt if, if you don't know where your money's going so, um, but the what the caveat that I would add is not to be. You'll probably be quite motivated after after kind of finding out all of the info, and and that motivation is probably going to be fueled by quite a bit of like anger and feeling like you want to punish yourself. But it certainly was for me. Um, try and kind of quiet those feelings down a little bit, and and be a bit kind to yourself because, um. If you go into an aggressive debt payoff um, kind of plan and an aggressively um, sort of stripped back budget, one of two things will happen. Either you will manage to stick to it and you'll spend a couple of years missing out on a lot and feeling quite miserable in, in order to get there. And you won't have tackled any of those feelings of kind of shame or self-loathing but you will get there, you'll kind of fix the superficial thing. Or what's far more likely is that you'll get a couple of months into it, it will feel really unbearable, and you'll think, like, sod it, and just start spending again. Um, 
and neither of those things is a desirable outcome what you want is something that's Mm. realistic that's going to allow you to enjoy life in the meantime something that's going to um you know help you to sort of come to terms with and fix the behavior that got you there in the first place um and that that's the only thing that worked for me is kind of taking Mm -hmm. a more holistic approach to it I think another thing that can be really useful is just reframing your language a little bit so um stop saying I'm to blame for this and start saying I'm responsible for this um you know Mm. stop thinking about it in terms of being to blame for the situation start to think of it in terms of being responsible for changing things um you know I found it really helpful at the start to stop saying stop talking about being in debt and start talking about having debt because it didn't take away the responsibility element but that being in debt conjures up a really horrible image of being at the bottom of a really deep, dark hole, or it did for me, and I think it does for a lot of people. Um, and I found that was not very helpful in feeling like it was a situation that could change or that I could change. So mm-hmm. I think that there's a degree of that. I definitely think it has to be kind of you have to sort of dual wield the practical stuff and the mindset stuff if you really want to, Mm. to, to, you know, fix the the problem, but also not do it in a way that's going to make you feel unhappy or like hate yourself more because that's Mm. in the end of the day, at the end of the day, that's not, (laughs) that's not what you want either. No, and that, I guess with any kind of recovery, which I feel like this sits in a kind of recovery place, it it it's a forever journey. You know, as you acknowledged at the beginning, though your financial situation has changed and is is stable now, the emotional elements, the things that got you to the original sum of debt, they're they're kind of baked into your life, aren't they? So they're they're things that you I'm I'm projecting here but I imagine you will always be something you have to work through or around or with whichever way you want to look at it yeah I think so definitely and like my baseline is definitely much healthier now but um there are always going to be those tendencies like some of them are to do with my personality some of them are to do with my relationships like all of us have these different facets of our life and um, money gets its tendrils into all of them Um, so we have to try and 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 this is what five steps is to do with so it's not it's not a process that you just go through once you're like okay tick 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 um it is it's kind of like a guided process for um healing your relationship with money and and really getting to grips with it but it's also hopefully something where you can kind of revisit and remember the the different parts when challenges come up in your life and and we all have like an ebb and flow of stress of Mm. money of health whatever different points throughout our lives but this is about um developing like a sort of like protective blanket of coping techniques and and knowledge and and all of that that you can revisit when you know at times when things are trickier or more stressful or you start to doubt yourself um and so yeah it's a it's a lifelong thing but I think that you can make Mm. things much calmer and more peaceful for yourself 
and that does bleed out into other areas of your life as well, or at least I've found it is. That's really all you want. That's as I yeah. That's all I want is is to feel. You know, my this is a bit of a different chat, and I do need to wrap, wrap it up. But I, I always think that I wanted to feel in control. I just want to feel stable and calm. That is kind of all of that's the the end goal, and and finances are so fundamental to that, aren't they? Definitely, and I think that um yeah, just having that like peaceful, more neutral relationship with money is probably what most of us want to aim for rather than just like amassing as much of it as we possibly can or you know because that can still be quite unhealthy but um yeah just just a a good steady baseline I think what most people want from money having sort of canvassed a few people about it is security and freedom so you know feeling sort of secure in their everyday life and and for their children and their family etc but also not feeling tied to an employer or a partner or um you know whoever Mm. having the freedom to make your own decisions without risking financial ruin is a massive thing as well as a way of ending I always ask people first of all where can people find you and what do you want to shout about so yeah you can find me mainly on Instagram at my frugal year and I'm just very much shouting about um the new book it's not out for a little while but um as you know pre-orders are always greatly appreciated um and yeah I'm looking forward to hopefully releasing a book when Maybe I might be able to do like a little launch or at least meet some people or see something. it in a bookshop or something. So, um, yeah, that's that's definitely next big project. I'm really excited to see it out in the world. Congratulations. Doing it three times over is very impressive and in a pretty short space of time. Yeah, and during a pandemic as well was quite was quite tricky. I think my... Um, it was a diff it was a very different experience each time and I think that's probably true for everyone who writes like multiple books I think you can't ever it's like having children you can't really base your experience for the next one on the previous one but um yeah it's been I'm not going to write another one for a while if that's all right with everyone I think I'm done for a while I'll hold you to that one Nick I'm knocking again (laughs) um and then my last question is if you could have an honest conversation with one person who would it be and what would you say it's I mean it might sound really trite, but I think my dad, um, I would, I, I never got the chance really to speak to him adult to adult. And I think I would want to ask him about like his, like this, his life before me, I suppose, because he was an only child and both his parents were dead long before I was born. So wow. I have no, I don't know anything about him apart from you know what my mum and my stepmom know uh so yeah i i would want to i would want to properly talk to him and find out about his life well thank you so much claire i've absolutely loved it it's been brilliant thanks so much for having me clemmy it's been it's been really really great now on to my second guest romy savova romy is chief executive officer of pension Boom a leading online pension provider she founded in 2014 to simplify pension savings in the UK. Following a tricky pension transfer experience of her own, she's also pregnant with her third child. 
I always start with three kind of jovial questions to get us in the thing. Okay. How are you really? What star sign are you? And what's your favourite biscuit? <laughs> um, okay. Um, how am I really? Well, I am very close to having a third baby <laughs> so i'm i'm doing i'm doing well i'm i'm pretty excited i'm happy i'm healthy uh i'm at work and it's been a really really busy year for us so it feels like everything is um you know everything is going off at the same time but i'm i'm, I'm really loving it um so so doing pretty well Good. It is, it, life always happens like that, doesn't it? Always, it's just you just got to keep Every, everything at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what star sign yeah. am I? So I am a Cancer. Are you? Uh, yeah, I would say I live up to many of the characteristics of being a Cancer. <laughs> um, I I can be emotional. Um, I'm very loyal. Uh, and, you know, I, I definitely enjoy having a birthday in July because it's always summer. Yeah, that's good. I'm, I'm a February birthday and I feel envious of you. Would you say you're <laughs> quite a homebody, though? That's what I think of cancers as being. Well, I am now. I definitely am now. I mean, it's 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 much harder to drag me out these days yeah. <laughs> than than when I was, you know, uh, before my children. Uh, but you know, I yeah, I definitely and I do enjoy being home. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pretend I'm a party no. animal. <laughs> no, I think we all can just give up, give up that. You know, there's a time and a place, but grow out of it. And favorite biscuit, most important one. Favorite biscuit it has to be chips ahoy mm. for me i love chocolate chip cookies um, and could eat a box probably by myself especially uh, at the moment especially at the moment <laughs> good choices oh yeah i always wonder how those questions are going to land but actually they, <laughs> they, they give you a really good glimpse into someone quite quickly <laughs> so obviously today we're talking about all things money And I guess for context, what has been your experiences about money, either growing up or now or over the course of your life? How would you describe your relationship with it? I would say that I've always been a bit of a saver. Uh, I'm I'm the youngest in my family and I remember always saving my pocket money. Uh, however, I also remember lending it out to my sister really often and never getting it back, <laughs> which doesn't make it a loan, I suppose. <laughs> but generally speaking, I've 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 always been a saver, um, which I, is I suppose one of the reasons I I ended up in pensions. It's in some ways it's the ultimate saving for yeah. for later on, um, and I think that I I enjoy the discipline of it. I enjoy being able to put money away, knowing that it's going to have a benefit later on that I'm really going to enjoy and does that I I find it absolutely fascinating that these things so often um, come out in childhood it's an aside but I was working on a project where I went back to my primary school yesterday and my mum found my old school reports from when I was 10 and the, the way the teacher described me was was unbelievably accurate to the adult that I've become <laughs> but the fact that you were yeah you were saving money and and yeah helping your sister out <laughs> from a young age is, and, and it does show a bit of that like the nature nurture thing you're being brought up in the same households but you're you've already got quite different relationships with money from the off 
Absolutely. I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, what do you find rewarding? Um, and I think I find saving very rewarding. Uh, and I think that if, you know, if you, if you learn about it a bit more and you get to enjoy the benefits of it, it, it really is quite easy to, to find it rewarding. So would you say you get your thrills from seeing that build <laughs> up more than making a big purchase? Well, I enjoy both. I enjoy I enjoy the journey to the purchase and then I enjoy the purchase itself. But I don't know if you have the same. Sometimes when you make a big purchase, you love it for a short period of time. And then, you know, you're thinking about the next one. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, with saving, you can have that ongoing enjoyment of the achievement for a much longer period of time. And I think actually we really lost the art of saving in this, because we, we are able to you don't have to delay gratification on anything anymore if you want something you can more or less get it whereas growing up if I wanted something you saved it and then you physically went to a shop and then if it was there you got it now (laughs) you can go definitely there (laughs) yeah you can go from that I think I want it to having it in a very short window of time now absolutely absolutely and sometimes that can be to our detriment because we don't have the cycle of thinking about, do I want it? Do I need it? Should I get it? Uh, Whereas that can be very valuable in helping us to prioritize things. And when you prioritize things, I think you ultimately enjoy them more as well. It's so true, isn't it? (laughs) And, And there is so much about that saving process, both in terms of relatively short things, to be get, getting big purchases but also life savings that the, the, the thinking about getting things yeah is so much part of the joy of it isn't it absolutely one of the things we consistently hear from customers at pension b who have been saving into their pensions is that they love watching their pensions grow uh and it's because that growth feels like an achievement so you, you're you're getting consistent rewards you're, you're getting you know gratification from watching your money grow but at the same time you're also saving so doing something for for future you and I think it can be quite a nice combination to you know have that Mm. gratification of I've achieved something while still knowing that the ultimate pleasure for it from it will come in the future yeah it's so true it's a nice way of looking at it I think I think unfortunately spending is given a bit more of a rock and roll it feels oh it's it is this yeah, quick reaction, isn't it? It's the thing that we focus on, but trying to really, it might not be as sexy, but that saving, <laughs> you can derive pleasure from it is also definitely yeah, really important. And tell me about how you got into the financial sector and how, what it's like to work in what I assume is an extremely male dominated sector. Uh, yes, I would tend to agree with that. Like, many people, I got into finance by accident. I had always planned to become a lawyer um, or to work in in the international field, uh, potentially international law or human rights. Uh, And a friend of mine at college told me about an internship at Goldman Sachs um, because she had done a similar internship. And I thought, well, maybe I'll check this, maybe I'll check this out and, and, and see what it's all about. And what I discovered is that in the world of finance, you actually have incredibly strong linkages to the international economy. Economy. And it seemed to align a lot more with what, 
you know, w- with what I had studied and, you know, what I had done at university. So I took the internship on uh, and effectively never left the world of finance. But it definitely wasn't, you know, what I thought I would be doing when I was six or seven and growing up and thinking about what I want to be. I don't think anyone starts off thinking I want to work in pensions. <laughs> <laughs> probably not. It's probably not. And am I right in saying it is very male dominated? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I think there have definitely been times when I have been one of two or one of three women on an entire floor. And uh, you, yeah, you definitely, you do definitely notice it. You, you notice, of course you notice it. You, you, you notice that you're different. Um, Ultimately though, I think, I do think things have gotten better and, and I look around now and, um, you know, you, you look at some of the statistics around diversity and progression and I can see strides being made. I, I don't yet see enough change around the leadership level. So women on boards, women in CEO positions, that is yet to come. Uh, I, I think one of the, you know, one of the key messages that I've been hearing over the last few years is that there are more men named John uh who run financial services companies than there are women <laughs> overall <laughs> and and so that that still remains true however i do think that progress doesn't come overnight mm. and i can definitely see i can definitely see a route to progress yeah it's it's so i still find it surprising although we know it to be true so i my career was in advertising which is also extremely male dominated and and the state really was that there was a, a a pretty good mix right up until the age that people have kids and then well that is the great divider yeah and then we try all tried to go back tried to do the juggle and one way or another people don't stick it and you know there's, there's it's a complicated set of things that, that lead to that but you know that whole role modeling is you can't be what you can't see until you've got women representing at the top, you, it's very hard to pull them all the way through, isn't it? It is. And also, I think the many of the women who are at the top didn't necessarily go through what it takes to get there um, for, for many other women because the reality of the childcare situation is that if you have, you know, multiple children then you need to have the appropriate support system in place to have those children constantly looked after. And that is simply not possible given the childcare situation in the country. You know, women have to make the difficult decisions of, do I give up my salary to another caregiver to raise my children? Or do I stay home and do it myself and, you know, also enjoy my children? And when you when you put the choices together like that, um, then of course it's quite it's quite natural that many women will choose will mm. choose to do that, um, and and that's because we don't have the appropriate support structures, the same support structures as men. Frankly, you know, men don't have to make those decisions. Mm. It's almost a given that you know the the woman who has the child will stay home. Um, we are at Pension B equivocally calling for you know more men to take time out mm-hmm. of the workplace and do their fair share 
of child rearing, mm-hmm. especially in those critical early years mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, th- there does need to be constant adult presence. Exactly. Um, so I think it takes companies, I think it takes families, and of course, it does also take government to make changes around childcare policy to make it more affordable for parents, for both parents to have a career. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I've also often asked myself about the conversations I'll have, particularly with my daughter, sadly, because the fact is biology remains as it is. It will be. Yeah. And, and and I wish, you know, I was definitely raised that you can do anything, you can do whatever you want to do, which is brilliant and true. But there were, the unavoidable truth is you will come to this bump in the road where where you are torn and and if if you want to have children and it's such a complicated decision and actually for me I ended up trying to stay in advertising for longer than perhaps was was good for me and my family because I was really keen to try and change the ratios to try and make a difference and then and then I realized what are you doing you're you're like you're beating the drum but you're you're making your own life really difficult (laughs) but it's 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 a real it's a real challenge and, and you know there's not much we can do about the fact that women have to have babies but as you say if if the distribution of childcare is is yeah more regularly split between either partner then or that it becomes a more of a, a normality to discuss which it should be rather than a given that it should be the women but it, it's it's very difficult it, there is no easy solution is there no easy solution i think it does start at the family level and having you know, having the conversations and and really for women sometimes to be quite insistent, um, you know, because there are existing gender stereotypes of what mothers should do. So it does often fall onto the women to be insistent around, you know, what what it is that, you know, what it is that you want. And so much, I always say so much depends of your life and the way your life turns out and the way your career turns out depends on, you know, depends on your partner. Actually, that's one of the most important decisions that you make um, yeah. about your career, <laughs> strangely. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think people need to make the decisions that are right for them. But I think that, you know, if that is something that women want to do, then they should definitely be having the conversation with their with their partner. Um, and I think that, you know, companies as well, I think, need to be quite open to the fact that women will have children and mm. that these, you know, a career spans beyond kind of the child rearing Mm -hmm. years and why shouldn't there be you know short term adjustments that enable you know women to continue to progress and to reach the top so Mm, I I, couldn't agree more multiple conversations to be had (laughs) yeah and and um this, that is we we just before this interview we were talking you know it is it is a finite period of your time where obviously you're a parent for life but there's a bit where it's, it, <laughs> yes. it's particularly the juggle is particularly real and then hopefully you can find a rhythm and yeah it's finding a way of doing it that can get you through that because I think again my advice to people is when you're in that first year of, of parenthood I urge people not to make decisions based just on that because suddenly you've shaped your career based on 
what isn't it doesn't carry on being like like it is then there oh, is thank a way goodness. of finding a book <laughs> <laughs> otherwise we wouldn't keep going back for more right <laughs> um yeah it's really difficult and uh, i mean there's a whole conversation i guess which ties into work that you do about women and finances anyway so to get into your product tell me about Pension B and why and how it started and what your ambition was? Well, Pension B started after I left the traditional world of finance. So it was after I left the investment bank, Morgan Stanley, and I had to move my own pension. Uh, and what I uncovered was just this you know, nightmare of the pensions industry that doesn't want to talk to its customers. And I tried to move my pension from the workplace pension provider to anyone who would take it. But none of the major insurance companies wanted to take me on as a customer. They felt my pension was too small. Um, they wanted, you know, I, I suppose they wanted me to get an advisor. No advisor wanted to take me on because they also felt my pension was too small. And, you know, eventually I made it over to one of the investment platforms that bombarded me with paperwork and thousands of funds to choose from. And I made it through the process, but ultimately ended up making a bad investment decision. And I had been in the world of finance. So I figured this is way too complicated to, to navigate for you know, for, for, for normal people, I find this way too difficult. You know, I, I think I can do something about it because I understand a bit about the strategic elements of the industry. And I, I knew that, you know, people would be getting automatically enrolled by their employers into a workplace pension. Uh, meaning that any time they switch jobs, they would ultimately leave those pensions behind. And how great and simple would it be if there was an easy online solution that would enable you in a couple of minutes to give a bit of information about yourself and your pensions and then consolidate them into a new online plan with money managed by some of the world's biggest money managers, uh, all from the palm of your hand within, you know, within reach effectively so that especially for women who are incredibly time poor um as we know you know we would be able to take control of this part of our financial futures mm -hmm. easily and simply and 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 that's really how it started off um the the technology to make that happen uh, is of course the key that sits in the background to you know to to help people do good things with their finances quickly and easily, and we support it with excellent customer service. Um, so we strongly believe that you know if you want to talk to your pension provider, you should be able to get through to your pension provider, you know, in the ways that are convenient for you, whether that's email or phone or or live chat. Um, and, and that's been the basic proposition since 2014, and we've we've just grown really really quickly because pensions is such a huge problem for the country. It's so uh, it's fascinating hearing you talk. First of all, because when you're describing it, it's such a kind of neat, succinct product. But I can only imagine what the process for that back end of it must have been like to to try and wrangle it. Yes, because there's so many different pension providers, and many yeah. people aren't always sure exactly where their pension is. Right, so you have to remember the different jobs that you've had you have to know a bit about the pension provider themselves um and in you know in, in other cases not you know not with pension b but in you know in many other instances you actually have to go and find the old paperwork 
mm-hmm. <laughs> which which itself can be a bit of a, a bit of a challenge. So yes, it was it's absolutely critical that you know we do the hard work in the background so that our customers can find it easy to sort out their pensions. I think it's brilliant. I mean, obviously, it's brilliant. It's been hugely successful. But pensions is one of those things. I think it's with everything. Being a grown up, you, at one point in your life, it feels irrelevant and something that you it doesn't impact you. And then suddenly you're like, oh no, I need to be the person that has this kind of stuff in order. And as you say, we're we're time poor, and it's the, the thing that you know. Other than going to sleep at night, I'm like, I should sort this out. I should sort it out. And then another week goes by and and you don't. But the idea that it is actually achievable without quite so much of the, the paperwork and the time that you require feels like, yeah, a massive win. Yes. And I, I think that as women also, we can find it a bit challenging to devote time to ourselves frankly we're mm. always doing everything for everybody else mm. uh that you know we really should be on top of this stuff but because of you know because of the competing demands on our time where we're, we're often not and i would encourage anyone who has the spare 10 minutes to you know do something for their for their financial futures i think you know it's hopefully we've made it easy <laughs> And and do you think it is as little as ten minutes to get the ball rolling on it? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, that 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 we do know, um, and I, you know, we we actually see a lot of activity on our site um, during the morning commute. Really? So yeah, when people because sometimes those are the you, free 10, 20, 30 minutes that you have. Done. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, we we very much aim to make it as simple as possible. I think that's such an interesting observation actually and why the although obviously the flexible working that's come about off the back of the pandemic has been great I do know like across my peers everyone feels as if they're <laughs> losing a grip on 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 life admin and maybe that's it that those commute the commutes that we saw as arduous which they can be also were the spaces when we did do yes. these, these kind of things like ordering the birthday presents replying to the exactly the whatsapps <laughs> yeah getting your pension sorted and and funnily because as you're saying we're not good at putting time aside for ourselves but the commute felt it feels like redundant time so <laughs> yes. we, we probably are okay at rewarding ourselves with that whereas in, when we're at home or in the office you feel as if you ought to be doing stuff at home or doing <laughs> yes. stuff so it's really interesting really interesting and talk to me about the the pension gap well the pension gap where where do we even begin i suppose generally it it starts to begin in your 30s so what we find is that where there is a gender pay gap there will be a gender pension gap um so when women enter the workforce in their 20s things tend to actually be pretty equal um, in terms of compensation. Uh, what starts to happen, however, in your 30s as you have children is that you you have periods of work where you are on maternity leave or you know, you've just had a child and therefore you've reduced your hours in some shape or form and therefore your income reduces. Um, and at that point in time, it's 
quite likely that your pension contributions will reduce as well. Um, and so men tend to not take those same gaps in employment um, and their pension contributions simply continue to rise along with their salaries. Whereas for women, that's just not that's just not the case. And within the investment industry, because those pension contributions are ultimately invested in your pension and invested in you know in, invested in the stock markets what happens is the impact of compounding returns so you you know if you're putting in less you are getting in less in returns um, and those returns that get reinvested um, are less than the returns that are getting reinvested for your male colleagues and so this you know these yeah. what can feel like very short term um impacts on earnings tend to get propagated and magnified by the financial system uh which is really designed to reward ongoing consistency so uh what we see if you fast forward over a 30 year period is the impact of those breaks becoming magnified um, the impact of the breaks on your subsequent earning potential, uh, because if you take time out of the workplace for a period of time, when you come back, you're still doing the juggle, um, but also you've had time out. So you tend to be at a bit of a natural disadvantage when it comes to mm -hmm. promotions um, and to compensation relative to your male colleagues, even if you're doing twice the amount of work um that they are actually doing uh if you combine your household and your work activities and so the cumulative impact of those reduced earnings over time and those reduced investment returns over time translates into a gender pension gap which leaves women somewhere between 30 to 40 percent worse off than their male counterparts by the time they reach their 50s and it's like it's such a depressing figure because you've probably you know you you've done so much worked really hard you've worked really hard exactly um but unfortunately the system is not geared for mm. you um and so understanding that i think and also you know implementing interventions is the way that i that i like to think about mm. it so you know the the common interventions are particularly during periods of leave that pension contributions you know between you and your partner should be shared uh, and you know m most couples don't really think about this right because you're on the verge of having a baby um yeah. you you know, you're wondering what you're going to be like as a parent, frankly, that, you know, how, how will life work? The last thing you're thinking about is retirement. And, and, but it's important to have the conversation to make sure mm. that you set yourself up for, for the future um, and, and make sure that as a family, uh, the, you know, the financial returns are, are equally shared, not only for your current household expenditure, but also for your future retirement. Yeah. I think that's such an important thing. And actually, my main takeaway from all of this is going back to what I mentioned before, I'm, I'm, I've been very caught up in the in the strong, independent woman narrative. And, and of course, there's so much of that that I stand by. But it's learning to understand if you've got, particularly if you have kids with someone, the, your finances need to work as a family dynamic. And, you know, it's not about going it alone and sorting yourself out that it's a, it very much needs to be the shared partnership and that is it translates into your finances and if we are going to be strong independent women that does also mean 
leaning in to understanding our the, the what seems maybe boring or uh, you know currently unimportant parts of our finances because otherwise we're going to be unstuck later on aren't we Yes, and that's that's very much what we find, um, you know, when we speak to women in their 50s or when we speak to, you know, t to women in their 60s. And I think we are now also at a point in society where people are more open to having these conversations, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's, you know, whether it's your partner, whether it's your workplace, whether it's your partner's workplace. Um, you know, it's I, I do think that the openness to having the conversation is very much there. Yeah, I think so too, and and it's why these chats between us are, are so well, valuable to me because I'm going to go and sort myself out. Now, so that's great. And if we inspire anyone else to to do the same and just think, actually, I I am going to take this window of time to do it and and yes. get in control of it because we recently did our wills which again is a bit later than it should have been but it's so ridiculous it's something that had hung over my head for years and then it takes 45 minutes and you've done it <laughs> and just, and so yeah it's it's about finding the time and prioritizing yourself yes, isn't it I, I i think so well thank you so much it's been really fascinating and, and a congratulations on creating such a brilliant product and b good luck with <laughs> thank <baby>. you <laughs> uh, i i will do my best to look on the other side <laughs> yeah you'll be all right yeah, try and enjoy it that's the most thank important you very thing. much thank you bye and that's a wrap Thank you to today's guests, Claire and Romy, and to Pension B for sponsoring this episode. And of course to you for listening to But Why. A quick disclaimer to remind you that pensions are investments and like all investments, the value can go up and down over time. So your capital is at risk. I'm so grateful to have you here. I can't believe I get to have these conversations, particularly ones like this that are directly useful to me because I'm going to go and sort out my pensions. Please do join me next week for more honest conversations. And in the meantime, please rate, review, subscribe and tell your mates all about it. I'm off to take a big deep breath. It's been a hectic morning. I have done um, a powerlifting class. I've briefed a designer for my rebrand. I've had school assembly, recorded a podcast and it's only mid-morning. So I need a bit of a sit down and a cup of tea and maybe a biscuit. Have a good day and I will see you next week. Bye bye.